0: Probably the most overused word in the English language is the word love. We just throw it around for all kinds of different things. I love my wife. I love my children. I love your car. I love that color. I love pizza. I mean, we just use it for for all of those things. But when I say I love my wife, what I mean is I care for her. I want to spend time with her. I want what's best for her. But when I say I love pizza, all I really mean is I like the way it tastes whenever I'm in the mood for it. So when a person tells you they love you, you know, how do they love you? Do they want what's best for you? Or do they say they love you just because they really want something for themselves, something from you? So the next time someone says I love you, you might just in your mind at least ask that question. Well, is this pizza love or is this the real thing? According to the dictionary, love is a profoundly tender, passionate affection for another person, a feeling of warm personal attachment. So the dictionary defines it as a noun that is a feeling. That's one of its definitions. But I would suggest that we start viewing love not so much as a noun, but as a verb. Actions that we're willing to take to demonstrate something, because the very first time The word love is used in the Bible. It appears in the book of Genesis. So it's a Hebrew word, and it means an act of doing. It is directly connected with action and obedience. And the root of that word means to give. So now we're starting to get the real definition, the biblical definition of love. Love wants to give more than it wants to get. Love is willing to act on something, Love is a verb. And as we come to Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 21, this section really sums up the word love. Paul is very practical, especially here in chapter 12. He has given us 11 chapters that he sums up in one phrase there in verse 1 about the mercies of God. He's saying, because of all that you know of what God's plan is for you, now here is God's will. you. And the first two verses of chapter 12 give us the will of God generally. And then in beginning of verse 3, he gives us the will of God specifically. But this is how practical Paul is. In the 13 verses uh, the remaining part of this chapter that we're going to cover, he gives us no less than 30 commands, 30 exhortations, all dealing with love, the very heart and motive of the Christian life. And in these 13 verses, we will see love displayed in three areas. The first of which is love in the family. And what I mean by that is the Christian family, the family of God, the body of Christ, and especially our local church body. So first, love in the family. If you would begin reading with me verse 9, let love be without hypocrisy, abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love, in honor giving preference to one another, not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer, distributing to the needs of the saints, given to hospitality. So in verse 9, Paul uses the word love, and it's the Greek word agape. Now, up until this point in the book of Romans, Paul has never used the term agape to describe our love for one another. So far in the book of Romans, the only time Paul has used the word agape, the Greek word agape, is when he talks about how God loves us. And now he takes the term he used to describe God's love for us, and he says that that is the love you are to have for one another. Why? Because agape love is the gold standard for Christian love in the Greek New Testament. Jesus says it's the way that the world will be able to see and know that you belong to me. He says in John thirteen thirty five, by this all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Agape love for one another. That is our calling card. Love. Now you know how we have like I said, we have one word for love in the English language. In the Greek, they have several different words for love, and there are four principal words. The first is the Greek word eros. Eros is the term where we get our word erotic. It's physical love. It's the word isn't found at all in the Greek New Testament. It's a word that means to grab or to grasp. It's the idea of self-satisfaction. The second word that is used in Greek is found, it is found in the New Testament. It's the word phileo. It's uh, brotherly love. It shows up in words like Philadelphia or uh, philanthropy. This is affection for a friend. It's a, fond, a fondness for another person. A third word is the Greek word storge. Storge is family love. It's the love that a parent has for a child or a child has for a parent. It's family affection. But then there's this fourth term, and it's used here, agape. It's a word all in its own class to describe the kind of love God gives to us, and that we, in turn, are, he's he's now saying, we're to give this to others. And that's, this is the word he uses. And notice what he says in verse 9, let love, let agape love be without hypocrisy. The Greek word for hypocrisy is where we get our word hypocrite, but it's a word that simply meant an actor. In Greek theater, back in their times, they didn't have many stage backdrops, so what they would do, they would come out on stage with these different masks on a stick, you know, the happy face, the sad face, the somber face, all on this mask on a stick, and they would speak through that mask. So the word hypocrite came to mean someone who wears a mask or an actor. So when he says, let love be without hypocrisy, he means let love be without a mask. Let it be genuine love, not the kind of love where you give someone a nice, sweet compliment, and then you turn and you leave and stab them in the back with gossip. That is fake love. That is love wearing a mask. And the church, the family of God, should never become a stage that is filled with fake love. Matthew Henry said, hypocrisy is to do the devil's work in God's uniform. It's a vivid description. And we get a prime example of fake love in the person of Judas Iscariot. On the same night that he sold out Jesus for a few pieces of silver, he met Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane. And how did he greet Jesus? With a kiss, with a kiss. And that so upset Jesus that he even said, You betray the Son of Man with a kiss with a kiss? I mean, he's he's surprised. Are you really doing this, Judas? This sign of affection, but in your heart you don't love? Let love be without hypocrisy. But notice it's followed here back in Romans 12, it's followed by another command. Right after he talks about love, he follows with this abhor what is evil. Abhor, that's a strong word, and it means to hate very strongly. Isn't that odd? That after talking about genuine love, he immediately gives a command to hate? It's like, I want you to love this, but I want you to hate that. Why is that? Because the reality is that love and hate often go hand in hand. What do I mean by that? Well, let me explain. God hates evil. And the reason he hates evil is because it hurts people. So for you and me, as we come to love God, and as we receive God's love, and we share God's love with the people around us, for us to love people in our family, in our church family, is going to mean mean that we hate evil, because evil hurts people in our family. But on the other hand, if we love evil, we're going to gradually grow to hate the people in the family, because again, it's hurtful, it's harmful to them. So that's the sense in which Paul is saying we need to abhor or hate evil because that's God's character. God hates evil. God hates unrighteousness. And God especially hates hypocrisy. And I think one of the greatest problems, one of the greatest weaknesses in the church today, it's not intolerance. I think one of the greatest weaknesses is tolerance for evil. It's, it's all around us. It's in the world around us. You can't get rid of it, but we should hate it. We should hate it. We should abhor that which is evil. Paul rebuked the church of Corinth because they were tolerant of immorality. He rebuked the church of Galatia because they tolerated legalism. Jesus rebuked the church in Thyatira, saying, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman, Jezebel. She misleads my servants into sexual immorality and eating food sacrificed to idols. You shouldn't tolerate evil in your own life or in the life of the church. Why? Because evil stains the body of Christ, it hurts, it brings pain. It's harmful, and it brings something foreign into it, and it ruins it. Now, speaking of this family love, he continues, look at verse 10, be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love. Uh, The Greek words, kindly affectionate, it speaks of the love and affection that a parent has for a child, while with brotherly love, it speaks of, uh, of the love a sibling might have for another sibling. Now, I have to say, depending on your family of origin, that may or may not be helpful to you in describing what this family love should look like i mean the reality is every family we're we're dysfunctional in some way or another there's some dysfunction in every family yet our family of origin it is extremely influential in shaping our attitudes and our actions about how we think about this of what family love in the church should look like so what should this look like in our church family Again, verse 10, it says, in honor, giving preference to one another. By giving honor to one another, it's being deferential, it's deferring to the other person. Well, I don't know, what would you like to do? I don't know, how would you like this to to go? How would you like this to happen? And I love the, the ESV puts it this way outdo one another in showing honor, to outdo one another. So we're, we're trying to outdo each other in honoring each other, in deferring to each other. And it's like, well, no, what do you want to do? Oh, I don't know. What do you want to do? Now, I know this can kind of get annoying, especially if you're trying to find a restaurant to go, we're going to eat lunch today, and then you've got to make a decision at some point, but the attitude is deferring. What would you like to do? It's being deferring. It's honoring the other person's opinion. Now, I'll look at verse 11, because I see this verse as the motive for this family love, Paul writes, not lagging in diligence, but fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. That is the key. Because we are serving the Lord, and that's our motive. We want to please Him. We want to honor Him and serve Him. It's our love for Him and our service to Him that is to spill out to those around us, loving others. If we love the Father, we will love His children. The New Living Translation renders verse 11 like this. It says, Never be lazy in your work, but serve the Lord enthusiastically. Enthusiastically, or in fervency. It's just boiling over. It's enthusiasm for God that should fuel our love for God's children. So verse 12, it says, Rejoice in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer. When you love people, in our church family, you never give up on them. When others give up on them, you still hold out hope for them. When they give up on themselves, you not only hold out hope for them, but you do everything you can to help them to feel hopeful about their future, that you hold them up, you lift them up. And then when it talks about being patient in tribulation, the word translated patient was actually a military term, and it was used for holding a position at all costs. So imagine you and the troops around you, you're you're in your bunkers, you're settled in, and here comes the enemy. Well, this word translated patience, it means no matter what the enemy throws at you, no matter what happens, you're going to hold your ground. You're not going to give up that ground. You're not going to yield your position. You're in there. And when we're faced with difficult times, when we rejoice in hope, And when we're patient in tribulation, and when we are steadfast in prayer, that sets us us apart, and it demonstrates the work of God in our lives, and the love of God in our hearts. Now notice verse 13, it says, Distributing to the needs of the saints, given to hospitality, our care and concern will demonstrate itself in practical deeds for others, for others in the family of God, And it's either going to them, that's that phrase, distributing to the needs of the saints, where you're going to them, or you're inviting them to come to you. Given to hospitality. That word hospitality, the idea is that you pursue people you don't know. It's loving the stranger. When Paul talks about hospitality, he's talking about hospitality to strangers. It's not inviting your friends over, it's, it's meeting the needs of a stranger. That calls us to really go against our, our human nature and act in the divine nature of the Holy Spirit. It invites us to go out of our comfort zone. It's to meet new people. And I know different personalities are different about that, but it's stepping out of those, those safe places and to, to meet the needs of someone. Maybe here, even here in church that you, you come early and you decide, oh, I'm going to just talk to new people that I don't know. I'm going to introduce myself. I'm going to pursue friendships with people I don't know or stay after the service and do the same thing, to get out of your comfort zone and give yourself to hospitality. This is love in action, not just feelings. So this is family love. This is level one. This first expression of love is among God's people, among the family of God, and we have to get this. We have to get this part because the next two levels are much harder. Here's the second level, love amidst hostility. Love amidst hostility. Let's go ahead and read the rest of the chapter, beginning of verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as it depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in doing so, or For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So beginning in verse 14, Paul makes an obvious pivot away from love in the church family to love amidst hostility. He's writing to a group of believers who live in Rome, and Rome was becoming a very hostile environment for Christians at this time. It was already hard, and it was about to get a whole lot harder for them to live out their faith in the Roman Empire. So how do you show love when you're under pressure from an unbelieving world? Well, to answer that, let's work our way from, gen- from the general to the specific. First of all, notice there are four negative commands in what we just read. where he's saying, don't do it this way. There are also four comparisons between good and evil. So he's saying, uh, don't do it this way, but do it this way. So let's look again. Look at verse, verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Again at verse 17. Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. Verse 19. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. And again, verse 21. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. In other words, our love should be independent of the treatment that we receive from other people. So they may curse, we will bless. They may hate, we will love. They may avenge, we will not. Now I realize this all sounds good in theory, right? We can read this and apprehend it in our minds and go, okay, okay, okay. But let me just say, this is impossible to do apart from being plugged into Jesus Christ. This is impossible apart from abiding in Jesus. If you try to do this on your own, it won't work. You won't last very long trying to do it. You will fail. But when you are plugged into Jesus, when you're abiding in the vine, abiding in Christ, when you're connected with him, you actually have an endless capacity to show love. You will never get to a place where you can say, well, I'm all out. Jesus is all out of love of running through me. It just ran dry. That will never happen. We already looked at it back in Romans chapter five. Romans five, verse five, it says, the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. So God pours his love into us and that never stops. He's, he's pouring it out. He's ready to pour it out. So the love that we pour out to others can never stop. As long as we're receiving it from him, it can go out from us. We have this endless capacity to show love because we can endlessly receive it from his capacity. Loving people who love you, that's easy. Loving hostile people, people who are not sympathetic toward you, that's not so easy but it's mandated. It's what he's saying. Now, we live, I don't have to tell you, we live in a divided world. We live in a divided country in many ways, and it seems like right now more than ever before, politically, uh, rhetorically, the language that is used, especially online and in in the media, the news clips by different political parties on different issues, it's a toxic environment. That if you spend too much time in it, it it gets on you. But I have a question for you. Who is it that you find yourself perhaps speaking in a derogatory manner? Is there a particular group of people that you find yourself speaking negatively about all the time, using deprecating language about them? Who do you need to stop being so hostile towards? Understand, our love isn't determined by how we are treated by other people something to consider, to pray about. Now I said we're going to go from the general to the specific, so now let's get specific. To be able to love amidst hostility, Paul gives two useful tools. The first tool is to sympathize, and the second tool is to harmonize. Look at verse 15 again. Rejoice with those who rejoice, and weep with those who weep. That's what it means to sympathize. It's when love tries to enter into the emotions of others. When we enter into that, if, if they're up or if they're down, if they're laughing or if they're crying, if they're disappointed or if they're elated, love will try to enter into that emotion with that other person. Do you know the shortest verse in the Bible or in the New Testament for sure? John eleven thirty five. 35, Jesus wept. But when you read that passage, when you're reading through John chapter 11, when you read that passage, your first thought isn't, oh, that must be the shortest verse in the Bible. No, it's more like, why? Why did Jesus weep? He wasn't crying because Lazarus was dead, and that is the context of that particular verse. He shows up at Lazarus's funeral, and it says Jesus wept, but he isn't crying because Lazarus is dead. He knows that he's about to call Lazarus back from the dead. So why did he weep? Because Mary and Martha, Lazarus' sisters, were weeping. They were crying. He was entering into their emotional state in that moment. And he's probably even weeping because of the unbelief that he saw in the crowd of people. But it says he wept. He entered into that. So that's the first tool, to sympathize. The second tool is to harmonize. Look at verse 17 and 18 again. Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. All men. In, in the language there, that word all, it means, it does mean all. There's no dancing around that. All people, believers and non believers, people in the church, people in the world, if it's possible. As much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. So there's two qualifications here to being a peacemaker. Number one, you initiate it. As much as depends on you, it says. So don't sit there with your arms folded like, you know, I'm only going to make peace if they initiate it. You know, they hurt me, they got to call me. They got to start this. No, you reach out to them. And then there's a second qualification to making peace. Both parties have to want it. Sometimes they don't. And that's why he says, if it's possible. Because honestly, it's not always possible. It's, uh, you can only do so much, and then it's up to them. You initiate it. You say, can we make peace? Hey, let's talk about this. Can we pray together about this? And if they say, you know what, go away. I don't ever want to talk to you again. Stay out of my life you're not responsible for that. You are responsible for your motive and your own heart. You can control your response, but not theirs. But never let the inability to live at peace be on your side of the fence. As much as you can, take the initiative, sympathize, and then harmonize. Because love is a verb. So that's love amidst hostility, Now, in this last section, I want to focus in on something very specific, and that is love among our enemies in verses 17 through 20. I want to look at a few verses where he gives explicit counsel for living with and loving our enemies. Look again at verse 19. He starts, Beloved, and isn't that just a sweet way to begin a a sentence? Beloved, those who are loved, ones, ones who I love deeply. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. Give place to whose wrath? God's wrath. Yeah. God's wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Did you know that God is way better at vengeance than you are? first of all he knows the motives he knows my motive he knows their motive he knows all the details he knows he knows my details he knows their details and in dealing with that person he would never hurt them too much whereas i probably would left to me i mean that's why the bible says an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth that's the old testament law and it's built in not as as to We kind of take that as, well, we need to do this much, but really it's it's a conservative approach because our first reaction is, well, you know what, you took out one of my teeth, I'm going to take out all of your teeth, you're going to need dentures. Or you took out my eye, I'm going to blind you in both eyes. You're not going to be able to see ever again. That's human nature to one-up the other person. So God says, no, let me handle that. Verse 20 Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. Now, if you actually do that, you're going to blow their mind and probably annoy them. Uh, I mean, in fact, I'll get, to, I'll get to it, but that's sort of the idea of this next sentence. For in doing so, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, some of you might be thinking right now, you know, I don't have any enemies, Well, first of all, I would have to say you don't have a pulse if you don't have any enemies because we all have enemies. Webster's Dictionary defines an enemy as one who is antagonistic to another. Does that kind of reframe it for you? Anybody antagonistic in your life that you know about? Any of those people in your life? You probably have a bunch of them, right? That are antagonistic. In Psalm 23, David said in his prayer, You prepare a table before me in the midst of my enemies. David had enemies. He had a lot of enemies. Goliath was an enemy. The Philistine army was a group of enemies. The Amalekites were enemies. The Moabites, the Syrians. Those were all the obvious enemies that David had. But he had other enemies. His father in law, Saul, became an enemy. His own son, Absalom, became an enemy. His trusted counselor, Ahithophel, became an enemy. Jesus even said a man's enemies will be those of his own household. Now why? Why do we have enemies? First of all, because we're human. And we're fallen humans at that. Number two, because we're Christians. And if you love Jesus with all your heart, if you follow him passionately, if you serve him enthusiastically, which means you're going to be vocal at some point, you're going to be vocal about your love for Jesus, that's not always going to go well. Paul gave Timothy a promise. In 2 Timothy 3, verse 12, Paul says, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. That's one of the promises of God. We don't like to claim that promise very much, do we? That's not our our memory verse. The thing is, the minute you say, I believe there's only one way to heaven, and I believe it's only through Jesus Christ that he's the way, the truth, and the life, and no one can come to the Father except through Jesus, and that's the only way that your sins can be forgiven, when you start being that, quote, narrow-minded and that vocal about who you are and what you believe, you're not always going to have a sympathetic ear. And Jesus tells us why. He says, for men love darkness rather than light. It's like when you when you go into a dark room and you get used to the darkness in the room and then someone turns on the light, you know, the bright overheads and you cover your eyes like, oh, turn that off. So that's kind of what happens. When you go into a situation and you bring Jesus into that situation, people will, will cover their eyes of their hearts and say, turn that off. Turn that thing off. So persecution happens. Persecution is simply a byproduct of going into all the world and preaching the gospel. It's just a byproduct of it. So what are we to do when we begin to gather some enemies? Are we to strike back? Are we to hit back harder? Are we to plot ways to make them crazy, just to drive them nuts? Listen, I'll be the first to admit that vengeance can be fun. Uh, It it can be satisfying. It can feel satisfying, and it can even be entertaining. We love it because, well, it feeds our flesh. It feeds that base nature in us, like, yeah, I got him back. I mean, a lot of the movies that even come out, they're all based on revenge. It's getting back, and you're like rooting for Yeah, they got back at him. I have a confession. When I'm driving, I can get heated pretty quickly. I can turn into another person, and, and I have to say, I did, we lived in Austin for 15, 16 years, and when you live in a big city, any big city, you have to learn to drive a certain way, right? I mean, just in downtown Austin, just to get on I-35 or get off I-35, you've got to learn to drive a certain way, and you know, then you come here to Bryan College Station, and where did all these drivers come from? Well, some are from Austin, some are from Houston, some are from Dallas, some are from really small towns. So you can't really predict how people are going to respond in different situations. Like, are you going to let me over into this lane or not? I mean, I clearly have my blinker on, aren't you going to let me in? And often they'll they'll speed up and you can't even get into the lane you want to get in to turn and you're like, oh, you speed up real fast and just pull in in front of them. And it's like, yeah, I got you. <laughs> now, I've only done that a couple of times in the past couple of weeks. I no, I don't, I don't know, but you know I, what that's like when you're you're driving and frustrated with people, and you like. Now, why should we love that? Why should we forgive that? Why should we feed and clothe and bless? that when people do things to us? I'm glad you asked. I'm gonna give you three reasons why we should. One, Jesus commanded it. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said in Matthew 5, in verse 43, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. Let's be honest. This is so foreign to our thinking. It is so radical because it's so unusual. I mean, who does that? Jesus does that. He did that, and he commands us to do that. He commanded it right there. Number two, Jesus practiced it. He lived it. They hurled insults at him. They beat him. They put crowns of thorns on his head. They pinned him to a cross. And when he was hanging from the cross, did he say, Father, zap them? Did he turn to the crowd and say, hey, I'm coming back in three days. I'm going to hunt you all down? No. He said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. In describing Jesus, Peter said in 1 Peter 2.23, When they hurled their their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. So we should do it because Jesus commanded it, because Jesus practiced it, and third, because people will notice it. When you do that, people will sit up and take notice because no one does that, or not many people do that. They'll look at it and say, wow, he just blessed that person. Oh, they just gave me a gift. That's so nice. Or they were nice to that guy in that situation. People will notice that. And that's the gist of verse 20. Look again. It says, therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in doing so, you will heap coals of fire on his head. This is, it's a reference to an old Egyptian custom When someone wanted to demonstrate public uh, contrition, they would put a cloth on their head for insulation, and then on, on top of the cloth, they'd put a little pan of burning coals to represent burning pain and shame of guilt. It was a way of saying, I'm really sorry about what I did, and I just want you to see how sorry I am that I'm walking around with these coals on my head. So Paul is using this as an illustration to say, when you love your enemy, when you don't retaliate, but instead you bless them, you shame them for their hatred. So that they say, you know what, I was a really rotten person. I was really rotten, to, or I was really rotten to that person. He was so nice to me. So it's an aspect of putting shame on their head for what they had done. So you want a perfect illustration of this? It's David and Saul. Saul tried to kill David numerous times. Saul hunted David. And one day Saul went into a cave and David was in the cave and Saul didn't know it. And David was in there and with his, one of his military mighty men and his, his buddy says, hey, kill him. This, this is the Lord. God is giving Saul into your hand. And David says, no, I will not touch the Lord's anointed. I won't touch him. And he cuts off a little piece of, of cloth off of his robe when he doesn't know it. And when Saul left, and he's on the other side, David's on the other side of the valley, and he starts waving this little piece of cloth around saying, hey, Saul, I could have killed you, but I didn't because you're God's anointed. And it says that when Saul heard that and when he saw that, he wept. And he cried out to David, he says, you are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good when I only repaid you with evil. And that is heaping coals of fire on one's head. Love is a verb. Now, I realize some, for some people, because they've been hurt, they guard their hearts so tightly because they don't want to be hurt anymore by other people. They won't give their love away to anyone, but every, because every time they do, they get burned. That seems to happen. They get hurt, so they build walls up, and they isolate, and they refuse to be vulnerable again. And I've had my own heart broken many times in life and in ministry. And every time, God says, love them again. Be vulnerable again, again, and again, and again. That's what we just read. In his book, The Four Loves, C.S. Lewis writes, to love at all is to be vulnerable love anything and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly be broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even an animal. So if you've been deeply hurt by someone, I realize it's hard to hear a message like this because it feels like you're being asked just to to roll over. It feels like you're being asked to perpetuate your victimization. And a lot of us imagine that by seeking payback, that we're refusing to be a victim. But the amazing thing is that what Paul says is exactly the opposite of that. Paul says that to seek payback is to be overcome by evil. To seek payback is to stay the victim. To seek payback is to stay in that place of being victimized. But on the other hand, when we decide to do good, we are overcoming evil. We are leaving the victimization behind us. And we are then and only then no longer being the victim, but because we're doing good. And the reality is that these kinds of things in our lives that hurt are the very things that are going to bring out the, the best in us, or they're going to bring out the worst in us. And it's all based on how we respond. Now, I'm not saying we stay in a place where we stay in a, in, in a place where we might get continually injured if you're in that kind of a situation but we don't give ourselves over to retaliation. It's been said that when love does not come to us, it breaks our heart, But but when we do not give love away, it hardens our heart. Some of us have broken hearts this morning, but others of us have hardened hearts, and our Father in heaven cares about both both situations. For those of us who have broken hearts, he wants to heal and mend our brokenness. And for those of us who have hardened hearts, he wants to soften our hearts and make us tender again. And I'll say this about love. No one has ever demonstrated love more than Jesus has. And no one has ever been rejected more than Jesus has been. And no one understands better than Jesus about where each and every one of us are in regards to loving people. Jesus experienced it all. He knows it all, and it's only by him that we can even have the power and the source, that he is the source for our ability to do this, to love one another, to act out in obedience in this way. Let's pray, let's bow our heads and ask the Lord to do that.